I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Song of Songs, <coughs> verse, well, chapter 1, and we're going to start looking at verses 2 through 17 tonight. Do you remember the way to find Song of Solomon is to head for Psalms and the wisdom literature and then turn right and continue going through Ecclesiastes until you get to Song of Solomon. We started out talking about the the main characteristics of the book uh, last week. Today we're going to actually get into interpreting it and uh, talking about what is meant in chapter 1. But before we turn our attention to the word, let's go to the God who gave it and let's ask for his blessing. Lord our God, we know that all of Scripture was ultimately inspired by your Holy Spirit, and all of it is profitable for us, for reproof and for instruction, both in what we are to believe and what we are to do. I do pray, Lord, that as we come to your word today, that you would be the light of our minds, and that you would help me, O Lord, to divide this word up aright. Help me, O Lord, to uh, not go astray, to not find things that aren't there, to not make allegories that uh, are um, uh, sketchy at best but rather, O Lord, to stick to your text and to apply it to your people. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Song of Solomon's, uh, sorry, Song of Songs, which is the Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and reading to verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. The daughters of Jerusalem will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats besides the shepherd's tents. I've compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant also. Our bed is green. The beams of our houses are sil- our cedar and our rafters of fir. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. I don't know about you, I was never, and there is a plan and a purpose to this introduction, I assure you I'm not going off on a wild tangent, Um, but I was never a fan of dissection at school. We would always get these formaldehyde-smelling, you know, frogs and and pigs and so on. And I remember once asking a teacher, why do I have to dissect this frog when there are plenty of pictures of frog organs and parts and so on in books that I can look at? And I was told it was so that I could understand it better. 
But I thought to myself at the time, I remember actually thinking this, this doesn't actually tell me about frog. It tells me about frog innards. It tells me about connective tissues and organs and things like that. Uh, but if I want to learn about the frog, I, I need to look at it in its natural environment. A dead frog is not, you know, the frog at its best. The frog is God has created it. Uh, the same, of course, is true of deer. I've, I've cut up uh, deer in the forest after shooting them, but there I learn about meat and its preparation. I don't learn about the deer. The deer is seen in its life and its environment. And I say that because I find dissecting poetry to be equally unappetizing. Once you start you know, digging into it and taking out the various parts and putting them on the table and so on, uh, you're doing something that is kind of antithetical to the very nature of poetry itself. Poetry is meant to be enjoyed as it is, is written. It's got a cadence to it. It is, as here, a song that we're supposed to have in our hearts. So I'm, I'm going to try to limit the amount of dissection I do, but unfortunately, there will, be, there will be parts left on the table and, uh, and so on, but I am going to try to concentrate on the commentary. Now, the opening and closing words of the song are both placed in the mouth of the woman, uh, which is, is fitting. She is the primary speaker throughout, although Solomon, uh, the king, does respond at various points. Um, but notice this in verse 2, after the, the brief title verse, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, it, it opens very abruptly. Suddenly, you're almost like reading her diary. You're, you're getting the innermost thoughts of her heart. Uh, but uh, at, the, at the time that we, we take up the song, we understand that it's expressions of her longing. We are hearing the desires of her heart, not an actual dialogue um, as it occurred between her and her beloved. It's not, you know, the stream of text messages going between them or anything like that. Her love for him is still yet, uh, we might say, fantasy rather than something concrete, rather than reality. Uh, in fact, we're not even sure at this point in the, uh, in the, in the poem uh, whether or not the relationship has been reciprocated is entirely her love towards him at this point, let alone uh, do we know whether it will be finally consummated, whether they will come together. Um, but regardless, we see the expressions of her love that we wonder to ourselves using a phrase that she will use again and again, has love been stirred up too soon? Is this all much too quick? And so on. A few things to note about this. First off, uh, she is not a feminist. She is not going to go out and grab this guy and then drag him back to her home. Uh, she wants him, note this, to take the initiative. She wants him to be the leader in the relationship. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She wants him to take the initiative. Indeed, it would seem because of, as we'll read through this, uh, as we've gone through it already, but as we'll unpack it, uh, he has to take the initiative because he is very much the, the king, the shepherd, the one who is in, in charge of the nation, and her station is rather lowly. Now, once you get down into the Hebrew of this, you begin to understand a little better why they didn't want uh, impressionable, fiery, uh, testosterone-filled young men reading it. Um, the Shulamite is lovesick, and the language that she uses is very, uh, uh, in the Hebrew, it's very 
uh, obvious. Uh, she wants this man uh, very strongly. For instance, the word translated love, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, in verse 2, is actually dodim. Uh, now, dod means to caress, quite literally. Your caresses are better to me than love. Here it is in the plural, which usually indicates sexual intimacy. So in Ezekiel 16, 8, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love, the time of dodim, the time when it's time to get married and actually have a sexual relationship with someone. This is the age of, of sexual maturity, to put it very starkly. As I said, you know, once you start getting down into it, you end up removing all of the beautiful you know, uh, nature of the poetry. So we note that the kind of love that she's looking for is, is the sexual love that one finds in a married relationship. Um, and she desires it passionately. It's, uh, it's a, a word that is used to speak of, of uh, the, the, the sexual relationship that exists in a passionate love. It's not simply procreation. Let him give me children. That's not what she's talking about. She wants this man. She wants him for herself, uh, not simply so that she can bear his children, but as we'll see, that is part of her desire as well. And the woman compares his caresses to wine, Wine is in the symbol in uh, the Bible. It's not something bad, uh, unless we it's spoken of as being mixed. Rather, wine is something wonderful. It's God's good gift. It's a symbol of the best life. Uh, rich feasting is something that uh, involves meat with fatty portions and the best wine. Good wine is tasty. It is intoxicating. Uh, and once we have had one glass of it, we are left desiring more. Hopefully we do not overindulge, but nonetheless, it is something that uh, we want and it's something that's good. And here uh, she is comparing him not just to good wine, but the best wine. And that should lead us, of course, towards Christ. It should lead us, uh, for instance, we should be thinking of the wedding at Cana where Christ did not just make any old wine. He certainly did not make Welch's grape juice. What he did was he made the best wine. When the master of the feast had tasted the water uh, that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have drunk, well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine or the best wine until now. And so we are reminded once again that our Savior is analogous to the best of wine, that in him we have the best of all things, and that uh, we should desire communion with him, which is above all other things. Now, she remembers in verse 3, she speaks of fragrance, and fragrance is something that's going to come up again and again and again. Uh, all of these good smells. Uh, she remembers the fragrance of the king's anointing oils. So although he is not out of sight, uh, he is certainly not out of mind. He, she notes he smells good. Uh, and the ability of, of uh, you will have, if you've lived at all, uh, you will remember that the ability of scent to provoke memories is, is very strong. Nothing provokes memories like smells. I can remember many smells from my childhood. One of the, strangely enough, one of my favorites is the smell of jet fuel, and then there's the smell of fish and chip shops and things like that. They bring back, uh, you know, memories. But one of the things that happens in lives is we associate our love with the smell of our loved one. They have a distinct smell of one kind or the other. I have met widows and widowers, for instance, who have refused to throw away the garments of their loved one after they die simply because they smelled of them. 
and they wanted to remember them through these scents. So in this case, the memories that are stirred up of him by the smells are happy ones. Uh, the scent uh, is something that she, she associates with him. It's not just scent for scent's sake. She does, it's not like, I like his cologne. It's, she likes the smell of him, and therefore she is reminded of him, and it stirs up desire within her. But note here, the desire, and this is something you'll see as well, although the desire is clearly physical, we would be fools to, to not see the physicality of this desire here. Even though it's there, it is not purely physical. Uh, she desires his kisses. She longs for his scent. But literally, she finds his character, uh, which is associated indelibly with the name. You remember, it used to be in the ancient world that you would try to give your child a, ca a name that you hoped would reflect a characteristic or something that, that noted their their. Uh, who they were in the world. So, for instance, Nathaniel is the gift of God. And uh, so Solomon's name has a meaning as well. It was meant to be the peace of God. And, of course, David was the warrior king. Solomon inherited this kingdom, whereas there had to be a little fighting that was done, but he inherited a kingdom that was essentially at peace. David had established it. His was the time of peace. So she finds that he is one who brings peace. He brings tranquility. Uh, so she's not simply attracted to him because of his physique. He's good looking. Uh, he's strong or his wealth or his, even his station. It is his character that she admires. Uh, his name, as I said, meant peace of God. And this should remind us also of Jesus. Uh, the fact that uh, he is spoken of in the Old Testament so for when uh, Jacob was blessing the children who were brought before him, he said that, uh, that, the, uh, that the scepter would not pass from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a reference to tranquility. It's uh, to the ultimate peace. And Shiloh was a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. His name to us has that meaning. Peace with God peace with man, tranquility, true peace of heart. When he is in our life, when we have communion with him, although the world may be raging, the storms and tempests may be about us, yet he brings us peace and tranquility. He gives us peace with God. Now, she also, note this, she speaks to the, uh, the virgin. She wants to tell everyone uh, about him. And that's something that we find profoundly with new, new lovers. You know, they, are, they can't stop talking about their beloved. Uh, sometimes it drives their friends absolutely to distraction. Yeah, we know him as well. Okay, could you... Uh, but is he dreaming? Is, is this? He did that? He woke up the other day. Wasn't that amazing? And I'm like... Like, uh, okay. Sometimes I've done counseling, incidentally, and the, and the people are so doe-eyed. I'm like, um, can I, we need to be, I need, yeah, okay. This is not going to work. So, but they have this constant urge to, to talk about their beloved and to talk about how unparalleled their beloved is. There is nothing higher than this person. Now, obviously, if you can't see the evangelistic application to that for Christians... Okay, then I don't know what to say to you. It should be the case that if nor, you know, uh, normal lovers, merely human lovers, can speak about their beloved constantly without becoming tired, there is something wrong if we cannot speak about Christ in 
even more exalted terms and speak of him as even greater than any earthly love to be able to talk to him about others. What I find sometimes very disturbing is that Christians will find it very easy to talk about a multitude of different subjects. They can talk about literature, they can talk about politics, they can talk about news, they can talk about sports, they can talk about their vacation, they can talk about their health, they can talk about, you know, all these subjects very easily. But when it comes to talking about Christ, not so much. I tend to find that if somebody who's supposed to be in a relationship has great difficulty talking or doesn't talk about their beloved, doesn't mention their wife, doesn't mention their husband, that something is wrong. This person is not on their mind, is not at the center of their attentions. And so certainly for a Christian who doesn't have Christ as the the burning fiery sun of our solar system, someone we don't mention, there is something very wrong there. So uh, she uh, obviously thinks that her view of her husband, the king here, or her future husband, uh, is shared by, in the, uh, in the Hebrew, it's the Alamot. Uh, sometimes they are the daughters, they're referred to as the daughters of Jerusalem, uh, the virgins of Jerusalem. The word, though, uh, is not speaking specifically for uh, virgins. It's those women who have reached the age of sexual maturity. These are the, the marriageable age women of Jerusalem who are in the right uh, position. These are the women who would technically be her competitors for the love of the king. Uh, they also are spoken of as the, the uh, kind of the ones who decide what makes a male desirable in all of society. They are the ones who uh, are, are to have a positive view of Uh, the desired because of all of his qualities and the assumption is that they will agree with them. This is incidentally uh, as you if you're going down the allegorical path the uh, uh, the virgins become everything but or rather the alamot become everything but the uh, the women of of, uh, marriageable age. Um, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux said that they were the the angels for instance and don't you angels agree with us how lovely Christ is? Well of course yeah but I I seriously doubt that that is what uh, was meant by Solomon but uh, it is Uh, an amazing thing here uh, that he is a possibility for her. Um, And the the daughters, apparently, they uh, they agree um, that this is a good thing. This this love that she's seeking is memorable. Um, Now, she wants to find her true love uh, and the Alamote want her to have this love as well. The interesting thing is, although they are technically, they would be her competitors uh, for his love, yet that doesn't seem to be coming out at this point in the, in the poem. There's almost an amen of approval uh, that the love that she desires is right. In other words, yes, you're going after the right man. You, you desire the right person. And that's a wonderful thing when, you're, you know, when you have friends who are like, yes, this is the person that you should be pursuing. And they're okay with both sides of the, uh, of the relationship. In this case, of course, obviously, as we apply this spiritually, it is a good thing to pursue Christ. And those who know him best will recommend him uh, to our friends and so on. This is the one whom you should be pursuing. Um, but this is, this is the right love, and it's not just a, a, a turgid affair that she's seeking. She's not just seeking a fling or anything like that. They uh, assume that she will be married and that uh, this true love that she is after, true love, is uh, something beautiful, something desirable, something that we ourselves should be looking for. But she feels, 
that she has a terrible impediment that will stop her from being attractive to the one whom she desires. Uh, It's a reflection of her humble station, and that is she is very dark. Uh, She has been darkened by the sun. Now, uh, in uh, the world prior to the 20th century, uh, to have a pale complexion was to have a very high status. It was very desirable. It meant you did not have to work out in the sun, and therefore you were considered of a higher social status. You were considered more uh, desirable in the 18th century, the 19th century, the 17th century. Uh, If you had talked to people about the desirability of a tanning bed, they would have looked at you with horror. Are you crazy? You've invented a device to lower your social status in the world to make you look more humble? This is, why, why would you pay someone to, to lower your social status? Incidentally, one of the greatest um, social upsets in history occurred in India after the British arrived. Let me explain to you why. The Brahmins, uh, and especially the Brahmins of the highest caste in the northern area, these were uh, the very top, the tippy top of the Hindu caste system, they did not work outside, neither did their wives, and so they, were, they had a very light complexion. But then suddenly the British appeared who were paler than the palest Brahmin. And the entire social system in that sense was undone. Now the Shulamite is concerned because her skin, she feels, will make her less attractive than the other pampered women of Jerusalem. Fear not, we will find out it's exactly the opposite way around. Uh, But uh, there is this, there's kind of a, uh, a difficult to understand uh, one where she says, she compares herself Uh, She says, she talks about herself in verse 5, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Now the verse should read, literally in the Hebrew, I am as dark as the tents of Kedar, but comely as the curtains of Solomon. The tents of Kedar, to let you know, the the Kedarites were uh, essentially Bedouin who lived in the far south of the country um, and moved around in that particular area. Their tents were made of um, uh, thick animal skins. Uh, They were not particularly appealing to look at, okay? But uh, the curtains of Solomon would have been silk curtains within his... Uh, within his palace, and she's saying that even though she is as rough and ready, uh, so to speak, as the tents of these Bedouins, she is nonetheless as beautiful as the curtains of Solomon. Solomon uh, would have been surrounded, of course, by pampered women with this milky white skin who stayed inside. They used cosmetics upon themselves. They went about under parasols to keep the sun off their skin. They did everything to maintain as pale a complexion as possible. And she complains that she got this uh, because her mother's sons, and notice this, that's that's a word that indicates a bad relationship. She doesn't say, we don't normally speak of, I don't speak of my mother's other son. Who do I refer to him as? My brother, right? I'm sure Reagan doesn't refer to her, uh, you know, siblings as my (laughs) my mother, the other sons of my mother. So um, there's there's a bad relationship here, uh, and it's very possible that the Shulamites' uh, father was, was already deceased. Apparently, they made her work out in the vineyards because they were angry with her. So there is kind of this Cinderella-ish note to the, uh, the poem as well. Um, and she notes that because they made her the keeper of the vineyards, she was not able to keep her own vineyard. What's she talking about there? Well, she's talking about her body. Um, she's uh, comparing it 
to a vineyard. And she's saying, I wasn't able to take care of it as I, as I should have been able to. I wasn't able to stay out of the sun and do all those things. But it is interesting that she compares herself to a vineyard. That is something fruitful. One of the things that we see in the Bible is that marriage is never designed to be sterile. It is meant to produce offspring. And the Lord again and again compares the church, the ecclesia in the New Testament or the kahal in the Old Testament to a vineyard because he is looking for a harvest. He comes looking for good grapes that will produce fine wine. That's what he wants from the church. He doesn't want a sterile church. He wants you guys to be reproducing. And there's a spiritual sense to that. He wants you making more sons in the faith. But one of the things I think the church has forgotten is he wants us producing sons and daughters as well. He wants us actually to have children and raise them up in the Lord, that this is a good thing. I think even Christians, certainly the society has forgotten this. And the, uh, there are actually cultures, um, and America is quickly becoming one, where the average marriage is sterile. They either have one child or no children at all. That's very common. Um, there was a, uh, a recent... Uh, move, I, I've probably discussed it before, I'm sorry, a documentary about the, uh, the population implosion. And within uh, Korea, for instance, uh, one of the things that uh, Mandetis went around and he asked, why, don't, why, aren't they, why aren't there any children? And they all looked at each other like, you know, well, we don't know. <laughs> you know? Well, uh, it's because you're not desiring them. You don't want them any longer. And so you're not producing them and you don't have to. But it is a good thing to have kids. Moving on then uh, to verse 7, tell me, O you whom I love, where is your flock? How do I find you? Okay, how is she going to find him? How is she going to put him in the way for her to notice her without doing something immoral or something too forward? We're reminded, for instance, in Ruth of how is Ruth going to uh, get close to uh, Obed? How is she going to, um, it is Obed, isn't it? Oh, no, yes, it's easy for her to get close to Obed. Boaz, I'm so sorry. How is she going to get close to Boaz? And uh, she sneaks up to him at night after the, uh, the threshing has, has taken place and the, uh, uh, he is well drunk uh, and she lies down beside him. She's not going to do this, though. She says she doesn't want to approach him as one who would have to wear a veil. Now, uh, to just to explain that, the veil was worn by prostitutes in ancient Israel because they were ashamed of what they were doing. So they did not want to show their face. Uh, where can she find, though, without doing something like that, the, the shepherd she longs for? And notice that the imagery shifts here. We're reminded it's an allegory continuously. It shifts from king to shepherd because he's the shepherd of his people. Notice also uh, she goes from being the keeper of the vineyard to a shepherd is taking care of goats. And as I said, that helps to remind us that the language is allegorical and we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't feel ashamed regarding a lot of the imagery and understanding these are metaphors. They're meant to point to something else. But she gets her answer uh, in verse 8. And the question that's always asked is, who's speaking in verse 8? If you do not know, O fairest among women, uh, is it friends giving her advice about how to find her loved one? Or is it Solomon adding an editorial comment to his composition? Or is it the beloved concerning her saying, you know, just follow my trail, don't worry about it? G.I. Williamson, I think, had a very good comment on this particular section. He said he believed it was God assuring her that the situation was already taken care of. You don't have to, this is Williamson writing, you don't have to invent some artificial method of meeting this man. You just stick to what you're doing. 
you just be content with your lowly status and God will take care of the rest. You see, she was wrong in thinking she would lose out because she was different because she was in a lowly station. For the truth is that Solomon had already noticed her and had noticed her precisely because she was not like all the rest. And there is that application that the Lord chooses his own and says, do not worry about them. He takes the initiative and he has chosen them because they are a peculiar people that he desires to make his own. We will seek after God, but we will seek after him because he seeks after us. Why do we love him? Because he loved us first. And there's this assurance, don't worry, the one whom you long for, your beloved, loves you. Now, interestingly enough, I'm I'm not sure how many wives would desire to be compared to horses uh, in the modern world, but uh, Solomon was a lover of horses. He had thousands of them, and he likens her to a filly among his chariot horses. Now, um, people are, are... are confused about this one. There's huge commentator battles going on over why, why he would do this uh, because he admired her lines as a, as a wonderful mare, you know, stuff like that. But um, uh, war horses that pulled chariots would have been mostly stallions. And apparently one of the, uh, the things that they did during a battle or enemies would do during a battle is in the midst of the battle, they would release uh, a mare in heat in order to draw the attention of the stallions immediately. And he says, like, you were like a filly amongst the stallions. You drew my attention. Uh, no matter what else is going on, I am, I am drawn to you. There's an attractive quality to her uh, that she doesn't even see. She has this very lowly opinion of herself because of her station, because of her humble status. I have nothing that would draw him to me. And he says, ah, oh, quite the opposite. You are incredibly distracting to me. You are noticeable. Uh, and then begins this back and forth interplay in the rest of the chapter where appreciation is shown by noticing the features of the beloved we most appreciate and attributing them to the things that we find most lovely. I was reminded of, uh, of uh, Robert Burns's poem or Ravi Burns's poem. Oh, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love is like the melody that's sweetly played in tune. You, uh, you, at least you didn't compare it to bagpipes, but um, the... Uh, The idea is that you find in your beloved uh, reminders of the things that you find most precious, uh, most alluring. So uh, he says that he is going to make her in the remaining verses even more lovely by the ornaments that the king gives her. He's going to give her earrings. He's going to give her necklaces. He is going to lavish, lavish wealth upon her. And the, uh, uh, the Alamot of um, Jerusalem, uh, the marriageable women are going to give her gold and silver jewelry. We will make this for you and give it to you. Uh, meanwhile, in verse 12, we find out it's not merely he that smells uh, nice and she's stinky. Um, her perfume is likened to a spikenard. Uh, which was a very costly incense from northern India. The king smells it, and he remembers her even when he is not physically present with her. uh, So he is reminded of her by her smell. And she says he is like a bundle of myrrh. One of the things also that's very important to remember as we go through this is that this was an age before deodorants became uh, widely available. Uh, We don't recognize in the United States how pervasive deodorants are, but when you are in a workplace, for instance, I I worked in Manhattan, for quite uh, a time, and there were always complaints. There would be one person in the office
nurse whose personal hygiene standards were not quite up to the, the normal scratch, and everybody would, uh, would complain about how stinky they were. Now, they weren't particularly stinky. They just smelled like people smell when you don't put on deodorants. We don't notice that because everybody is under pressure to put on deodorants. But you go to the third world, and you smell people who smell like people. Um, it, you know, there are people smells there. Uh, but in those days, women, in order to avoid the people smell, they would put a thing around their neck, uh, a bag with fragrances within it, so that when somebody got close to her, they wouldn't smell her underarms. They would smell the nice fragrance that the bag between her breasts was emitting from beneath her clothes. And that's what she's talking about in verses 12 through 14. There is obviously... Uh, uh, you know, you're like the bag that lays between my breasts all night. Um, there is obviously a sexual reference there. I'm not going to go deeply into these things because I'm figuring most of you can figure them out. And if you're not old enough to figure them out, I'm not going to explain them to you. Your parents can do that at home. So, um, but her thoughts of this man are like a sweet perfume to her 24 hours a day. She is constantly thinking upon him. There's obviously something there for the Christian as well. It should not be the case that you can go day after day without thinking about Christ. It should not be the case that Monday through Saturday, your thoughts are entirely on the things of this present life, your career, your friends, your favorite games, things like that, TV, books you're reading other than the Bible. And then suddenly all of that thought is interrupted for a brief period by church. And you're forced to think on Christ, perhaps, to pay attention to him for a little while. But then you go back to all of those other things, your other thoughts. If that's the case, then there's no real love. If you can forget about your loved one for day after day after day, then there's a problem. That is not love. If you can set your attentions on other things other than this, uh, this person, that's not loved. She loves him. She thinks of him 24 hours a day, and we should think of Christ the same way. Um, and when she says that he reminds her of the, the smell of the, the sachet, uh, it's not Old Spice. Uh, it's not, you know, uh, Brut by Fabergé. You know, that, um, uh, those kind of, oh, my word, that's, that is a smell. It's not a particularly good smell, however. Um, he's the best of perfumes, she says, from En Gedi. He's not, he's not a fake. He's not discount. He's not any of those things. He is the real deal and the best of things. Uh, and that is the, the, obviously the scent that Christ should exude for the Christian. We should uh, savor the smell of Christ uh, when he is close, especially when we are in his presence in worship. It should be something that we long for and that we love, we desire. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I've been away from worship uh, within my own congregation for a while, I long for it. It is a, a savor to me, the, the smell of, of salvation. Uh, his response to her is that she has beautiful eyes, uh, she has dove's eyes. Now, uh, commentators also are like, well, it's talking about the shape. No, it's talking about the color. No, it's talking about the, and you're like, okay, the dove's eyes. I don't know exactly what that means, but dove's eyes were very appealing to him, so therefore his beloved had dove's eyes. He compared it to things that he, he enjoyed. Um, and then we get into verses 16 and 17 finally, and let me... Um, uh, Beloved, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters are fir. All of the modern, this is a sex manual for um, uh, married couples uh, in the church. Interpreters uh, just take off. This is about um, 
having a fling on the grass in the midst of the forest. Uh, so the, the New Living Translation, which never hesitates to go ahead and make a theological assumption, even if there's very little support for it, actually goes straight down that path. What a lovely, pleasant sight you are, my love, as we lie here on the grass, shaded by cedar trees and spreading firs. That is not supportable in the Hebrew. Okay, it is just, they've just gone right off. Let's, that's what's going on here. Our bed is green, we're lying on the grass. Um, now, the bed being green, the, it's, it's more accurately verdant, okay? It's, it's lush, it is full of life and so on. She is not praising the color choices also of their furniture within the palace. Oh, our bed is green, and green is my favorite color. No, she's rather, she's talking about the fruitfulness that she expects will come from their coming together. Once again, we're being reminded that uh, the, the soul's delight was not simply to, to be physically intimate with your, your loved one, but it was also to produce a family. That was something that was supposed to delight you as well, the thought of having children together. It appalls me that we live in a generation that thinks of children as a giant inconvenience, something to be either dismissed entirely, put to death, done away with or moved through as quickly as possible, pushed off on other people, rather than something to be desired, something that we would want. Um, just a, uh, a comment here from, uh, this is Ian Duguid, who's actually an ARP interpreter. He says, likewise, when she talks about the cedar beams and the pine rafters of their house, she is not describing her delight in the beauty of a wood-paneled bedroom or a pleasure in making love outdoors in the woods. Unfortunately, one of my Old Testament professors, actually, that was his opinion. It drove me up the wall. Uh, rather, she is exulting in the enduring firmness of their relationship, which provides the solid materials out of which to build a lasting house and home that is a family. We may compare, compare rather, Lady Wisdom building her house and establishing its seven pillars in Proverbs 9.1. This is one of many indications in the song that the relationship that the woman has in mind with this man is not merely a brief sexual liaison that will satisfy their youthful passions, but rather an enduring marriage in which they will build a home and a family together. Now, there are certain applications that we will uh, need to be making here. I just want to make to you two. Uh, two, which is, it really has two sub-applications. The first is this. In uh, a balanced life, in a balanced love life as well, um, we have to, there has to be the physical side. There has to be attractiveness and so on. I once remember uh, giving advice to a young man who came to me and uh, he was talking about uh, the fact that he, he was attracted to uh, two, two women. Uh, one of them was, he said, you know, far more, um, far more theological. Uh, he's, and then the other one was theological. You know, she was not theological and very attractive. Uh, and he said, should I, should I marry the one I'm less attracted to because she's more theological? And I said, why would you do that? You know, um, and he's like, well, I feel like that's the holier thing to do. <laughs> and I said, I didn't use this phrase. And I said, son, do you think the Lord doesn't want you to have fun in your marriage? Is that really what you're thinking? You know, that you expect your marriage to be one long theological conversation? going on and on forever and so on. Um, it's like, well, I never really thought about it. Is it okay to, you know, I'm like, yes, it's okay to desire them. Um, so it's, it's okay to desire that physical side of your marriage. And the church has often beaten that down as though it's unholy or made us feel bad about it. Uh, the Roman Catholics still speak in their theology of sex within marriage as a necessary evil. Far from that, it's spoken of as something that is good. 
It is part of the marriage that's not to be denied, Paul tells us. In fact, the only times that we're supposed to stay away from it is when we're, we separate, each other for, uh, separate from each other for a little while for a season of prayer and fasting. But then we are urged to come back together again as quickly as possible. So we shouldn't be squeamish about the subject of sex. The romantic portion of marriage should be part of marriage, and it should be something that the church speaks about rightly within the bounds of covenantal uh, marriage. One of the problems that we have is we've separated sexuality, unfortunately, from marriage, and we speak about it truly mechani- uh, you know, either mechanically or in an animalistic sense. Uh, we only speak of love uh, in, in the lust sense. It's all eros. There's no, there's no fullness of agape within, within that marriage. We need to have that. We need to be giving something also to the coming generation that's better, far better than the hookup culture that they're being sold. Married love is better by far than anything that can come from flings and so on. Um, But at the same time, we also need to be impressing upon them that it's not just that you should be attracted to the physicality of the person you desire. It shouldn't be their looks that you are, or you're going after. It's also, and the more important thing is the aspect of their character. And if you're truly going to have a one flesh relationship as Christians, then their love of Christ must be as profound as your love of Christ. It should be the case that when you chase after a woman, you have to follow her following Christ. You have to at least catch up if you don't take the lead yourself immediately. I found in my own marriage when Joy became a Christian, she knew far more about the Lord than I did. But my desire was to learn about Christ. My desire was to be the, the spiritual leader, not just the physical leader within the household. And so I did all that I could to try to match her at the very least as she was learning and following Christ. That should be part of your relationship as well. There should be that spiritual aspect and the person who you seek after should have that durable character, that that quality of Christ-likeness that is so important in a marriage. Then there's another application here that's rather obvious in uh, in all of these... um, fears that the Shulamite has, uh, kind of the spiritual application of, am I worthy? She does not feel she is worthy. I'm, I'm low class. I'm, I'm, I'm dark and so on. There's nothing in me to which the Lord could be drawn. And she hears instead, no, I'm drawn already. Before you noticed me, I noticed you. Such is the love of God for his people. He is the one who comes after us. And although spiritually we need to remember that we are not just dark, we are profoundly warped, we are disfigured, we are dead, we smell of death, but then the Lord calls us to himself and he makes us something entirely new so that like him, we have that scent of life to us. That should be something that marks the the Christian. We should not be a a death people who spend all of our time in the necropolis, going back to the world with its darkness and so on. Have you ever considered how profoundly death culture-oriented we are? We're not a life culture any longer. We're a death culture. I used to play games that didn't involve killing people over and over again. Can you believe it? They used to have games like that. Now that, uh, that's what we play 24 hours a day. It always um, it kind of amused and at the same time sort of 
I, I don't know what the word is, uh, maybe a little horrified, that I would hear from troops. I was like, what do you do when you're not you know, out trying to kill the Taliban? Oh, we come back and play Call of Duty. So I'm like, okay. So your games are you try to kill people, and then you go outside and you kill people. <laughs> do you do anything except killing people? And they're like, no, that's pretty much it. You know? Sometimes we play cards, and usually we don't kill each other during that. You know, but that was, that was about it. But we have a culture that is so animated by death and sterility and a lack of life and a counterfeit that it's, it's so dark. You see people who are covered in, in, in tats that would have gotten you burned at the stake long ago because they're all associated with the evil one. Instead, rather, we should be a people who are marked by light and life. We are, should be a people who are verdant ourselves, and not just in terms of producing kids. Yes, we should be producing kids. That is a good thing. But we should be people who are replicating ourselves as we draw others to Christ, and we bring people to the, the light of him. But note this, that the intimacy that we most need, there is a wonderful intimacy that can be had in this life in marriage. Absolutely. But the intimacy that is closest and most needed is, of course, the intimacy that we have with Christ. And the way that Christ lavishes his love upon the church is unparalleled. What was he willing to do for the church? He was willing to die for the church and then to richly ornament her with the gifts of his spirit. What he gives us are better than gold necklaces and earrings and so on. He lavishes his love upon us, and then he gives us the gifts of the Spirit, and he makes us like himself, drawing us to him, drawing us into that communion, and then communion with the Father, and then into the closest familial relationship that we can possibly have. Now, it is a good thing to find a mate, a spouse in this life, but it is sadly the case that many find a spouse who fits them well in this life and end up in hell because they did not find the spouse of spouses. They did not find the king of kings. It should be the case that even if we don't have somebody in this life who we find as a mate, that there is one to whom we have the closest relationship, and that is the Lord who draws us to him. He should be the one we love the most. It should always be the case that our spouse is second in our hearts. Christ must always be first. So let's thirst for intimacy with him. God, our Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the reminders of how close the union between man and wife is. But, Lord, we long even more for that marriage that comes between Christ and his bride, the church. Let us be part of that. Let us look forward to the wedding supper that will have no end, that will be such a celebration. We long to eat and drink with the one whom we love the most, and that is the Lord of life, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.